Uh, hello, everyone. And uh, again, thank you for joining us. So this panel focuses on thinking about the museums as public cultural institutions. And given the current COVID-19 pandemic, uh, thinking about museums may seem completely trivial when we're faced with so many life and death, medical and social issues to address at hand. However, it is precisely because we're in this unprecedented moment of enormous collective stress on what makes us human that we should not neglect our effort to think innovatively about how to move forward in promoting art and culture sector beyond pandemic, starting with the most public facing institutions like the museum. In that context, I think cultural institutions like museum can provide a space of transformation for the public, thus can be instrumental in healing from the collective trauma of COVID-19. So I would also add that thinking further about museums in the post-COVID-19 world can provide further insights to the discussion of the future of higher education institutions that face similar challenges of value justification and rethinking of its operation. But thinking about museums in the post-COVID-19 world is not an easy task. Uh, as with everything else, there are just too many unknowns and uncertainties. What we're trying to do today, so, is to brainstorm together. Some of the questions we would like to discuss include how can institutions like museums, which are, uh, you know, well known to be very slow in to change due to operational administrative needs and inherent necessities of long-term planning to remain nimble to respond to uncertainties such as COVID-19? And how can we engage patrons as partners in sustainability of museums? And also why are partnerships between academic institutions and museums as centers for research and learning critical in this juncture? And of course, as you know, this year, 2020, happens to be 150 years anniversary for both the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Art and the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, um, which actually was, there was a call out to think about the future of museums even before this COVID-19 crisis. So to help us with this afternoon's discussion, we are joined by two experts in the field, Dr. Martha Tedeschi at Harvard and Pro Professor Naman Ahuja from uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. So I'm delighted to have them both uh, joining us. Despite their busy schedules, I'm very grateful to Professor Ahuja for joining fr uh, from Delhi uh, at this very late hour. Uh, so I'm going to actually ask uh, them to take turns to speak for about 10 minutes and, uh, and then we will open the floor for questions and discussions for the remainder of the panel. So I would actually uh, introduce Martha Tedeschi first. Uh, Martha Tedeschi has served as the Elizabeth and John Moore's Cabot Director of the Harvard Art Museums since 2016. Prior to her arrival at Harvard, she served as Deputy Director for Art and Research at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she also enjoyed a long tenure as curator in the Department of Prints and Drawings. And I must add that the Harvard Art Museums just opened an absolutely phenomenal exhibition on Edo painting from the Feinberg Collection, a huge promised gift of Japanese art that I believe is the largest ever exhibition mounted in the Harvard Art Museums. And it must have been just so painful to have to close, have had to close the museum just a few weeks after opening that magnificent show. So Martha, what has been happening since the sudden closure and what are some of the major challenges that you have dealt with? And uh, we'd love to hear from you about your experience as a director of this uh, 
amazing university museum, which provides such a unique opportunity for learning and research. Gina, thank you very much for that introduction. Um, and you're right, it was heartbreaking to uh, close the painting Edo show almost before you know it had even had a chance to have any critical reviews. The good news is uh, it will reopen whenever we reopen. So um, it's sitting in the dark right now. Um, I wanna preface my remarks, which are more um, intended really to be sort of springboards for a later, what we hope will be a kind of brainstorming. Um, but I wanna preface that with my thanks to uh, both Tarun and Mina for uh, in my invitation to join this meeting today. Um, interestingly, and maybe prophetically, the topic was meant to be rethinking museums. Um, and we were really gonna think about what the museum of the future should be, could be. Um, that turned out to be more prophetic um, I mean, it's really quite remarkable to think how prophetic it was, because in fact, I think now I've come to realize that this is the watershed moment. The future of museums is now. We, what we decide, even practical kinds of decisions, are actually going to change museum policies, I think, in very deep and profound ways. So I'm going to explore a few of those examples. Um, of just, and, and this is all drawn from what I'm thinking about right now as I talk to my colleagues across the US, um, as I compare notes with other directors here in Boston, um, you know, as I talk to Harvard leadership about health issues. Um, these are all practical problem solving um, kinds of conversations that I'm steeped in right now. And um, what's quickly become apparent is that every practical solution has a sort of ideological implication. Um, so that even things that seem like no brainers actually really in some cases undermine or flip the way we used to do things um, in museums, including how we used to value success of museums. Um, as Gina said, um, the Harvard Art Museums is an academic art museum. So we're a little different from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, for example. We have a primary mission to support teaching and research. We are ourselves a research institution. Um, at the same time, we have a public face. Um, it is the seventh largest art museum collection in the country. Um, so we are known um, very much also for that public face. Um, and the collection is a very fine one, about 250,000 objects, which has an international reputation. So we you know, in the best of times are walking a kind of hybrid role between being a teaching museum where um, future museum professionals are trained and where Harvard undergraduates learn visual literacy to um, a museum that's also thinking about its public, um, how to expand audiences, um, how to repurpose what we're doing for the university in a way that benefits our local community. So we are different than some museums. Um, and certainly I think, you know, American museums do differ in significant ways from some of our sister museums abroad. But what I would say is every museum is unique, really. Um, and that's what we love about them, isn't it? I mean, every collection is unique. If we weren't unique, we could just go to the same museum over and over and over again. Um, so my remarks you know, really reflect the conversations that we're having at Harvard right now and with my US colleagues. On the other hand, um, 
I heard a nice phrase yesterday, which is, although we may not all be in the same boat, we're in the same storm. And so I think a lot of the, the kind of high level issues and problem solving uh, kinds of exercises we're going through um, are certainly uh, relevant to um, museums around the world. Um, so one of the things, it's, it's not been easy to support the morale of a large staff, the Harvard Art Museum has 210 employees, who are used to working with works of art every day and to support them working at home. Um, and, you know, I noticed the first few weeks, the impulse was very much to just get back to normal. How quickly can we get back to normal? Then it became clear that there wasn't ever going to be the same normal. The best we could hope for was a new normal. And I keep telling them that, you know, the museum we evacuated on March 13th is not the museum we will be coming back to. Um, and I think that difference will hold. Um, in other words, I don't see us at this point shifting back into old ways so much um, as finding new ways to do things, new partnerships, uh, new ways of measuring our success um, and setting our objectives. How is the role of the museum going to change in response to this crisis? How do we think about going back to um, Professor Baba's very uh, thought-provoking comments this morning. How do we think about preparedness and unpreparedness? Um, how do we think about health in the museum context? Are we going to have to pivot to being an institution that is expert in keeping our visitors safe? Yes, I think that that seems obvious. Do we become a place that's just as much about health and safety as about inspiration um, education. I mean, does that get rolled into our highest priorities and goals? I think very likely. Um, I think that means that as we look at the new kinds of partners we will have, um, our partners will be in public health, um, they'll be in data collection, they'll be in um, PPEs probably, at least in the short term. Um, they will be partners who are expert in the science of viruses, and crisis management. So those are all things that museums have been somewhat sheltered from in the past. Of course, we keep our museums clean and we think about visitor safety, but those are now gonna be major um, criteria in our planning, which means that we're gonna have to establish different protocols and different expectations, especially for our visitors. And what will that look like? Will we still have the same public when we open our doors eventually? How long will it take to regain the same kind of commitment on the part of the public um, that we enjoyed before? Will people be comfortable coming back? Um, will we ever again want, will ever again, you know, 300 of our visitors want to go into our, our major auditorium, Mentual Hall, and sit next to each other in, an, in a lecture? I mean, these things are also, of course, um, germane to academia in general. But so we're thinking about, well, what does programming look like? And, you know, should we continue to measure ourselves right now? American museums at least measure themselves very much about attendance. So if your attendance is going up, you pat yourself on the back, your trustees are happy, everybody thinks we're doing well, we're attracting bigger audiences. 
However, when you think about all the tools we use to attract bigger audience, like offering free days, you now realize that a free day could actually be shooting ourselves in the foot because the more people that come into the museum, the more you're potentially putting them in an unsafe situation or people may get freaked out by being in crowds and decide never to go to a museum again. So, you know, I think now we may find ourselves, and I don't have the answers to this, but this might be something good for us to discuss as a group. Um, how do we measure um, the success of a museum if it's not about the sheer number of people who are packing into the galleries? Um, are we measuring it by the quantity and maybe intimacy of encounters with works of art? Does intimacy become a really important value? It is one of the values of the Harvard Art Museums anyway, but does that now become one of our primary um, values? And what does that mean then about serving your broader community? How do you do that uh, while keeping you know, numbers in check and social supporting social distancing? And even when social distancing may not be actually necessary, um, I think some people will find themselves off already doing that, automatically doing it. We're, you know, we're changing our own etiquette rules. Um, the art world is famous, for example, of you know, every, every colleague you meet, uh, every donor you greet, you kiss on both cheeks. You know, I think that just the way we do business, even in those kind of mundane things, um, is going to change. Um, there will be some positive gains that museums have made um, during this time. One of the big ones is, of course, that in the past, museums have not been a site of uh, virtual or digital expertise. We all have websites. We have a few people on staff who are good at thinking digitally. Um, but that doesn't mean that we've ever been leading the way um, or that we've ever really put uh, virtual and digital um, capabilities, technologies to work in a way that really takes advantage of those technologies. We find that what we're using is digital technologies that can try to somewhat replicate the museum experience. But, you know, what if we thought completely different about that, differently about that? We're experimenting with different kinds of live events now um, that can still bring um, tactile qualities and issues of weight and size into the conversation, even though the object is on the screen. So, um, but you know, there's also a possibility of having our outreach to our digital audience be much more interactive than it has in the past. Um, I would say it's been a pretty passive relationship until now. So, you know, I see that radically even with our own museum uh, developing that we are so much further than we were eight weeks ago when we first went remote. Um, and if anyone's interested in checking out sort of that trajectory of our thinking, you can go to the homepage of the Harvard Art Museums where we have something called a link called uh, the Harvard Art Museums at Home. And that will show you sort of what we did at the beginning, which was repurposing old content to now more live events and more creative uses of the collection, um, as well as um, we've been doing the same thing with remote teaching, trying to be more creative um, and find ways to give life to objects on the screen. Um, some of the things I'm thinking about right now, um, will some of our staff stay remote? In other, in other words, there's some people who can't do their jobs, conservators, art handlers, the people who make 
objects accessible in our study centers who teach classes and take tours, they have to be in the museum. Uh, but there's some people who are actually more productive right now at home. So how do we think about that? Is that a viable uh, workforce strategy for museums now to have those who are engaged in research, for example, when they don't need access to collections, working at home? Uh, what does that do to our financial and staffing picture? Um, certainly we're finding, and I think many other institutions are as well, that this has been an amazing time to work on our data, cleaning up our data, or especially collection data, um, making sure that every record that we have for an object is authoritative, that it's been proofread. You know, we never have time for that sort of thing. And yet research all over the world is being based on what's on our website. So, and many of the people um, on my staff who are involved in data entry and data cleanup say they're more productive at home because they have fewer daily interruptions. So we are actually doing a weekly survey of our staff to gauge morale um, and what's getting done well and what isn't getting done at all at home. Um, we're thinking about installations. So when we first open, we are assuming for the purposes of planning that we will still be needing to social distance. So what does that mean about our installations? When we put up a new exhibition, do we spread out the works more throughout the galleries? Do we have fewer works? Um, do we even have labels? Because labels are a place often where you see multiple heads coming together to read the labels. Do the labels have to be huge? Um, some directors are now talking about not having labels, having something that each, um, you know, a handout that each person can carry in their own hands so that they can social distance and get the information that they're looking for. Um, again, uh, it's a big conversation in museums about free access. Um, and many of my fellow museum directors at first were thinking when we reopen to the public, it'll be a tri triumphant moment and we should be free for the first week or the first month. Um, to, you know, win back our audiences and throw open our doors. And then we started to think about what happens on our free days. Typically, our free days are mobbed. Um, so is that the way you reopen? Um, so this is, you know, again, a, a sort of a practical issue now. Um, but it has really big impl implications about how we um, think about crowds. You know, are crowds important to museums or should we be avoiding them now? Um, very basic things like, will exhibitions have loans in them? Uh, many exhibitions that we do at Harvard and certainly around the world are um, based on loans from other institutions from all over the globe. Right now we have many loans that are stranded in other countries and at other museums in the US because we can't go get them um, and the services that would be needed to pack them um, are not available and it's not safe for our couriers to travel with loans right now. So works of art are stranded now. So taking our, a page from this, will registrars and curators be willing to send their top items across the world to share them you know, with another audience? In the past, we've always tried to do that when we can. Um, but you know, will our decisions now be colored by the fact that they may get stuck there? And what happens um, if this particular work gets stuck? 
um, for us in the teaching museum, we're always aware that certain objects in our collection are used very heavily for teaching. So if something gets stuck for a year somewhere, um, that actually impacts the syllabus and the curriculum and certain courses. And we tend to know what those courses are and how those will be affected. So um, Martha, I got pinged uh, several times. I realized I need to watch the time. Oh, OK, and, sure. Yeah. So, um, uh, I yeah yeah, you, have you see where I'm going with this. Um, yeah. and I'm happy to you know, bring up some of my other points in conversation as yes. we take questions. So. Yes, please. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Martha, for that uh, oh, really wonderful remarks and, and you know, sharing your experience-based uh, observations and, and the problems uh, that one needs to address here. And um, so our next speaker is Professor Nama Nahuja. And Professor Naman Aoja uh, is Professor of Indian Art and Architecture at uh, Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Professor Aoja focuses on Indian iconography and sculpture, temple architecture, and Sultanate period painting. He has curated several exhibitions on themes ranging from ancient to contemporary Indian art, including the widely successful exhibition of India and the World, A History of Nine Storage, Nine Stories held at the National Museum in New Delhi in 2018. Um, I wish I had seen that exhibition really. So uh, Naman must be having quite difficult with the lockdown in India. And I know the challenges that museums face in India are uniquely different from those in the Western societies. But an optimist in me wonders if this COVID-19 would turn out to be an, an important watershed moment as uh, Martha was pointing out to reform the ways in which museums and other cultural institutions operate in South Asia. So given your experience um, advising museums and the Ministry of Culture of, of the GOI, I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on the challenges that museums in India face before and within this pandemic situation and your insights on where the museums should go in the post-COVID-19 world and what are the most needed impetus to make certain desirable outcomes possible. I know this is a a whole lot of questions and I, I'm asking you to speak for only 10 minutes. So uh, that's just unfair. And, and we need to unmute you before you can speak. Thank you all very much. Greetings. Um, it's very nice to be a part of this conversation. It's been a great pleasure to hear such interesting and pointed perspectives. And I'm going to <clears throat> raise some of the points that were raised by um, Homi Baba and by Muhammad Zaman before me but I'm gonna try and make them more pertinent and focus on museums, art, and the culture industry more widely. The present crisis has certainly given us all in higher education and in the field of museums, cause to reevaluate how we continue to function. And every crisis can indeed be an opportunity, but to make it into one, we also need to think about the manner Think, think about it in a manner that does not seek to disadvantage those who do not have the same wherewithal that those in one part of the world or in middle-class homes may enjoy. In India, one of the major things that has been exposed in the past six weeks has been the poor access to online resources in rural areas. <clears throat> now, if the limited smartphone penetration in the country is now limiting the efforts of those wanting to use it for contact tracing, which we just heard about, we also have to remember that there are even fewer who have computers at home on which higher education must rely. 
We have students in Ladakh, in the hills in the northeast of India, on the western coast in the Konkan, or down in the Nilgiris, with whom we have not been able to make any contact since the lockdown started. Embracing an online transformation, as Martha Tedeschi was just saying, is not the all-encompassing solution it is portrayed to be. Connectivity issues apart, we've even come to see the limitations of online pedagogy. Our efforts notwithstanding, we've come up against certain very distinct problems. While showing students videos of festivals and rituals which are germane to understanding the context in which an artwork is located, we found that our understanding was entirely dependent on or conditioned by what a camera person had chosen to photograph and how. Colleagues who work with theater and performance studies have often raised this problem where the inability to engage with dance or theater physically impedes certain kinds of research and analysis. So how does the museum do right by the public when we need now not to increase visitor numbers, but as we were just hearing, find ways to reduce our physical attendance and yet justify our ethical raison d'etre by making ourselves democratically available to all. And that's a very curious situation. Now, Homi Baba raised a very important matter, which was a bit of a slap in the face to governance. We need to catch up with what we've been lagging behind on. We've seen certain blind spots, but we aren't doing enough to cover them up. Now, even in art history, there are cultures or communities, or in fact, entire swathes of India's general India's regional museums, which have not documented their collections completely. You ask them whether they have online connectivity and documentation, and they'll all say yes, and ask them how much percentage of your collection is actually online and digitally available, and it's only a fraction. As art historians, we are very often still in the fact-finding stage of scholarship, reliant on documenting sites and collections, as we do not have reliable existing documentation already. Now, whereas in Western art history, books are written nowadays on reinterpreting the canon in light of current scholarship, many parts of South Asia have to perform both functions simultaneously, the new interpretations, as well as the fact-finding documentation. So one very significant limb of the research, therefore, lies locked down and just cannot be performed anymore. So as I was saying earlier, what this lockdown has exposed glaringly are the many jobs that have not been completed over the past 20 years of technological advancement in our field. And here I'd like to remind us of the unpreparedness that Homi Bhabha spoke of earlier this evening, my time evening. Um, museums have only just made a start in creating online databases or digital collections management but rare would be the case of a single museum in India that has managed to achieve a comprehensive database of all its objects. The opportunity that this crisis presents, therefore, is first and foremost the requirement to catch up with what should have been done already. The next issue concerns what museums need to do with regard to making their collections available digitally. Now, this is as much a product of the narrative that you wish to communicate as it is dependent on the technology you wish to utilize to communicate that narrative. 
many Indian institutions continue to remain under the fallacy that technology purchasing the right hardware and software will allow them to be at par with the leading institutions of the world. This is a naive approach because what is most important, of course, are the storylines, the histories, and the many narratives that can be simultaneously communicated by the museum's establishment. The online platform is finally something in our grasp, which is something that enables a plurality of voices and interpretive frameworks to simultaneously emerge. And the museum to no longer be an institution that toes a particular party line, but once again, be an institution that starts showcasing divergent opinions and plural histories. Of course, all this depends on whether the museum is willing to hire academicians and researchers who can fact check and who can vet these multiple and very exciting lines of communication, which they can generate for diverse viewerships. Regrettably, however, this enormous potential for generating jobs in the field of art history has not really been tapped. Perhaps we need to think about interdisciplinarity and collaborations with other streams, not just within the humanities, but also with science. Museums in India have a poor record of conservation and display standards. We all know that. Indian art also continues to be utilized primarily to tell the history of religion. And the research potential of archeological material has not been tapped from the perspective of telling stories, perhaps from the perspective of design or politics or investigating it, the objects through applied science, material, material analysis and scientific mechanisms for dating are only available at one Indian Institute of Archaeology, whereas there should be at least 12 or 15 other departments that are capable of initiating research projects of analyzing artworks and artifacts through scientific means. Finally, I'd like to end with another set of questions that are pressing, which will affect all of us in the field of higher education. Old questions that we never really sorted out when we should have, and remain hurdles for us still. We need to think about the ownership of the narratives and the ownership of the knowledge that is being generated. The history and art museums in the Western world that never sorted out their narratives on decolonization and ownership or the terms of sharing with other institutions in the world or other countries in the world today will also find themselves perhaps stymied in the ways in which they wish to think in terms of sharing participation and sharing knowledge content and generation. The concerns, this concerns the publishing of all the data that we are generating online. What is the, what, what is the citationality of digital content? After all, <clears throat> as good researchers, we all give citations to reliable sources to prove the credibility of the statements that we are making. With the possibility of so much fake news, institutions like museums will have to assume greater responsibility for the research they undertake to put out their narratives. So we're confronted with a situation where more and more digital content has to be made available free for users. Are we therefore going to be reliant on financial models of advertising or philanthropy or insist on grants for gov from governments to be able to maintain that function 
and yet try and maintain institutional autonomy for the narratives we wish to stand by. I think these are some of the issues that are, that are quite pressing and urgently need some kind of thinking as a collective, as a community, as we, if we want to really go ahead with the altered scenario that we are confronted with now. Thank you so much, Taman, uh, for your brilliant remarks. And uh, I will open the floor for uh, comments and questions. And I think, Taman, uh, your sort of last set of questions were really uh, profoundly important to think about. And I wonder if uh, Martha or even uh, Homi want to sort of respond to Naman's you know, questions and, and observations. Well, I think there are fundamental questions about ethics and equity that can't be superseded. Um, and I think the whole question about me mechanical reproducibility is now an ever more pressing question theoretically that we must address so that we can have a very practical solution to it all in how we wish to engage with our publics. And mm -hmm. I, I think these, these things have to come out of our, of our theoretical concerns and turn into practical policy in how we are now going to have to confront um, access to knowledge, access to information, and access to, to the object itself. Absolutely. I think, Homi, you actually had a, a raised hand. Uh, can you, would you like to respond or comment? Thank you. Thank you both so much. And, uh, you know, the serendipity of this, of these issues that you raise is great because it, I will have to leave pretty soon because I have a meeting with curators at the MFA because we are part of the ongoing conversation about how to restructure narratives and uh, particularly in this context, but also in a, in a kind of a long durée. So that's one of my, uh, uh, one of my tasks at this new position that I've uh, accepted uh, for, to work with the MFA. So for me, this has been an incredibly interesting and informative uh, uh, session. Uh, and, and coupled with the one that went before, uh, I want to just uh, tell you what a rich experience it's been and, um, uh, and, and the take up of some of these ideas of unpreparedness, particularly Naman with you and also with Gina and, and others been very educative, educative for me. Let me just say uh, three things and then I may have to run um, to this other meeting uh, a museum-oriented meeting. One, uh, Naman, I think that there are many things that you say um, which are very pointed, as indeed uh, with Martha, which link to my issue, let us not think that the old normal was the good normal, and now this is going to be the new normal. We have to use this as a two-way mirror to think about it. And there were many issues raised there. Um, when Martha spoke, one of the things that most uh, impressed me was how to think about a, what I would call a new sociability. A new sociability in public institutions uh, in the context of where we are. How do we foster that? How do we create that? How do we give it presence? It's a very difficult issue because even now, as I see each one of you 
framed like a little portrait in a museum in these little windows, I miss the connectivity. That's why when I teach, I ask all my students to de, um, uh, you know, to get off their mutes because I want to hear the background sounds. I want to hear the breathing. I want to hear the cat. Uh, I want to hear the dog. So I always get my students to unmute completely. And then we can deal with this rich chaos of sociability. But I do think sociability is going to be a very important, is going to be a very important issue. And if our sociability is completely infused with the, uh, with the quite appropriate set of protection, security, and illness, we are entering a, an area where I would love to participate in a larger question of the unpreparedness for this new sociability. So, Martha, I, I take that point very clearly. Uh, again, and, and, and Naman, your excellent comments on this kind of technological utopianism, that if only we got the technology right, we would be able to enhance this experience. I think we've got to think of the loss and the gain. And I think that um, it, it, the, the equity issues are extremely important. The issue which, and you, you made a splendid point about that, the redistributive issues, the redistribution of knowledge and, and um, objects. Martha, you talked about that too. Are we going to be able to, uh, our, 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 is, the, is the freedom and the right to movement upon which the new museums might actually want to construct their practices, are these going to be harmed? I think the right to movement is for my, it's part of what I'm working on, both in terms of cultural artifacts, but also in terms of migration. And I think these two things really do come together, although this is not the point, place for me to make the point. But the question of narrativity is so important. Um, it's also important, and as you quite rightly say, Naman, it's particularly important when at this point we are in a situation where particularly in the area of culture, there is so many manipulations of cultural knowledge. Of course, we see this in India, we see this in Brazil, we see this in Poland, we see this in Hungary, the attempt in the United States to see this is just incredible. If there were not some parts of the, if the universities were not fairly independent standing established places and, 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 the, and the press was not fairly independent, you will see it in spades here. So, you know, how are we going to be able not only to pluralize the narrative, but also lest I sound like some of the leaders I least admire how are we going to control the narrative? Control yeah. What are yeah. the good, what are the good, sorry, I'll finish. Yeah. What are the good practices of interpretation? And how do we make sure that it's not simply pluralized and therefore, you know, the, the, the current uh, attempts to interpret anything as you want it uh, against the protocols of knowledge and history? How can we protect these narratives? Yeah. Absolutely, Haleeb. Uh, thank you for all these uh, wonderful remarks. And I'm, I'm re reminded that uh, we are very uh, short on time already uh, listening to uh, experts speak. So I wonder, Martha, would you like to respond to the comments uh, so far or? Uh... Uh, yeah, without taking too much time, my apologies for having done that earlier. Um, I'm interested both in Homie's point three about 
pluralizing the narrative, but also controlling it. Because of course, the more you put your collection out there in the digital realm, the more you lose control of how people will use that, both the image and the, um, and the data that you've associated with it. Um, and then also, Naman, to go back to your very important point about how do we sustain? I mean, we know that one of the ways to, for the museum to become more democratic is to put more of the collection on, not only with narratives, but you know, with images and to make it widely available. Um, but there is no business model for that for museums yeah. that I know of. Um, you know, we're, we're not like um, commercial websites where we're going to have, you know, ads pop up. Um, I mean, I don't think museums have been really open to that in the past to becoming sort of advertising spaces for commercial right. enterprises. So I'm interested in how we do this. You know, how do we both throw our our energy into this um, and at the same time do it in a way that's sustainable. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the I guess there is a, the financial side of and the impact of the COVID-19 directly on finance, finance of all these cultural institutions is going to be enormous. And in that scenario that you're sort of talking about, you know, to be autonomous and be able to promote this kind of plurality of interpretation, but also have be able to sustain this. I guess that's uh, uh, a, a huge question. That but I one, think academic museums, um, museums and academic institutions, I should put it like that, do have um, um, a precedent. They do have strong foundations because um, as we all know, um, philanthropists cannot control the narratives and the way in which the museum, uh, the university maintains its autonomy, um, it's much the same way that the university museum is able to do so. Mm -hmm. And so um, a balance between the trusteeship and uh, the grant receiving bodies. But I'm also talking about the enormous amount of work that's going to now yeah. come in, into judging and vetting uh, the copy that we generate, literally, actually, in terms of the increased function of the work that a museum does. And, you know, once upon a time, museums used to have their own presses. The grand old museums used to have uh, a university press with which they were attached, and they used to be able to publish what they wanted to say, which their curators had done the research on and generated. And there was a certain um, reliability to what was produced, therefore, because it was regarded as being peer reviewed. And now with digital content, we haven't really thought through how we're bringing in a process of peer review into the digital material mm -hmm. that we are, we are putting out there. And, and that is going to be a, a stumbling block because there are going to be opinions in this plural platform of the digital, which is enabling, of course, but at some point, the institution which has claimed autonomy has to then take responsibility for the narratives that it is putting up. Yeah. And if those are versions of, the, of history that they are backing and standing by, then, then they have done their fact checking and they should be able to be accountable for those narratives. Absolutely. I think that the issue of peer reviewability of these sort of uh, digital contents and the research that generate 
and plural, plural voices that are generated by these sort of uh, availability of the material fully actually is actually important. And there, there, there goes ethics and equity issue that uh, I, I'm just uh, had pointed out how the ethics and equity issues are omnipresent, uh, not just in art sector, but really brought into relief by this crisis. Um, and I, I do agree that this is actually uh, kind of penetrating all, all through. I mean, I have to say we're out of time, actually, I'm, I'm reminded. So uh, I, I will just end this panel by thanking uh, Naman and Martha for joining us and, and uh, wonderful comments and everyone's uh, uh, participation and, and attention. So thank you all both uh, very much.